The fourth chapter of the book of Ruth is about a hero. At least he was a hero for a woman by the name of Ruth and a gal by the name of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Actually, the story has within it two heroes, two men from Bethlehem. One is in the story, one is implied by the story. One is written about, one is foreshadowed. The first is Boaz of Bethlehem, circa 1100 B.C. The other is, of course, Jesus Christ, who was born in that same town of Bethlehem, circa A.D. 33. One was a hero to two women. One was a hero to humanity. One was the actual kinsman redeemer. The other was the one that he foreshadowed. And we want to look at that tonight. As I say, it, it fits perfectly with, with communion. The story begins with a man named Elimelech. I'm just recapping for those who weren't in our study. You should have been, but you weren't, so I'm going to recap it for you. <laughs> Elimelech is the Hebrew name that means God is my king. And he married a gal by the name of Pleasant. That's what Naomi means. So God is my king and Pleasant. What a great life together. But they had two children, and their children's names weren't all that fortunate-sounding, blessed. You see, the firstborn was, well, they named him Sicko. That's right. That's what the Hebrew malon means, sickly, sickly. The secondborn, they called him crybaby. That's what hilion means in Hebrew, one who whines or cries. So Elimelech and Pleasant have sicko and crybaby, <laughs> and they leave the land of Bethlehem, and they go to the land of Moab, some 40 miles away from Bethlehem, because there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And they heard that Moab, which receives the gentle rains from the Mediterranean, it's situated a little bit higher than Bethlehem, at about 3,500 feet above sea level. Its uh, ground is more porous on the upper plateau. It's great for grazing. So a man who said, God is my king, left the land of promise to a foreign land that was cursed by God and the law. Instead of trusting in God in the midst of the famine, like so many of us, we just want to escape the trials. Well, he escaped the trial, and he went over to a place called Moab. We think, what's the big deal? The big deal is that Moab was settled by a group of people who descended from Lot, and the Moabites were the product of incest. We discovered that in Genesis chapter 19. And God placed a curse on that people saying that no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the congregation of the Lord up to the tenth generation. So I believe as a prodigal family, they left the land of promise to go to a foreign land, not trusting the Lord, but trusting whatever was out there. In Psalm 108, God himself, through the psalmist, says sort of like a backhanded piece of humor. He says, Moab is my wash pot. Modern vernacular, Moab is a garbage can. So they left Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go feed in the garbage can. 
They paid a hefty price. Elimelech died. Naomi became a widow. If that wasn't bad enough, her two children, Melon and Kilion, both died, making her not only a widow, but now bereft of her two children and leaving her with two daughters-in-law. And it was a horrible story. It went from bad to worse until a gal by the name of Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, made a choice that changed all of human history. That brought us, actually, the genealogy of Jesus Christ recorded in chapter 4. And Ruth, who was not even under the covenant of God, but a Moabitess, seeing the kind of commitment that her mother-in-law had to go back and place herself under God's covenant, said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She made a spiritual choice to not just follow mom-in-law, but to follow the God of mom-in-law. Naomi had no land, no husband, no sons, no gold, forfeited everything, but she had a God. And that was enough. And Ruth makes this God her everything. She completely trusts in him. And God rewards those who diligently seek him. Isn't that right? It says that in Hebrews. And so the story unfolds beautifully. There's a great hymn writer by the name of Fanny Crosby. She wrote 8,000 songs of praise. The ironic thing is that um, she wasn't born blind, but Fanny Crosby became blind very shortly after her birth. And yet she was one of the happiest people around. She never cursed God for her blindness. She never got mad. She never got bitter. She worshiped. Jesus Christ was Fanny Crosby's hero. She wrote a song called Redeemed. It's still sung in churches around the country. And one of those stanzas goes, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Somebody came up to this dear woman at one time and actually said to her, you know, it is a pity that God in all of his mercy has given you so many gifts and yet rendered you blind. And Fanny Crosby said something to him that I'm sure shocked him and he would never forget. He said, you know, if when I was born I could have been given one wish I would have asked God that I would have been born blind rather than to have become blind. And he was shocked. He said, why? She smiled and said, so that the very first face that would gladden my sight would be that of my Savior. Jesus Christ was her hero, her all, her everything. Well, chapter 1 is the story of this prodigal family and how she loses everything Naomi comes back with Ruth to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 is where boy meets girl. Or to be in reality, older man meets younger woman. Because that's Boaz and Ruth. In chapter 3 is where she pops the question. That's right. She proposes to him. And he says, don't worry about a thing, sweetheart. I'm going to work it out. Chapter 4, the best is saved for last. It's where they become man and wife, and he assumes the role of kinsman-redeemer. 
In verse 1, it says, Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and he sat down. Now remember, Boaz had told Ruth, I'd love to marry you and buy the land, giving the money to Naomi. However, there is a relative closer and more eligible than I am, and according to law, he has the right of first refusal. If he doesn't want to buy the land, I will, and you'll become my bride. So he sits in the gate. The other guy comes by. Hey, buddy, have a seat. i got to talk to you. So he took, verse 2, ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now, let me just paint this scene. This is a courtroom scene, basically. The gate of the city was where the news was exchanged, business was transacted, legal matters were settled. The elders would sit at the gate and convene over the business of the city. Don't picture a little wooden enclosure with a little door swinging back and forth. That's not an ancient gate. That may be a modern gate. In ancient days, cities were walled and very compact, and gates were enclosed structures that had a square in the middle, a courtyard, and a bench seat made out of stone, usually uh, around one, two, sometimes three sides. Because you could enter the city and leave the city, travelers would tell of where they'd been, what's going on in other parts of the world. That's where you'd, you'd get the news there. And because it was a place of entry and exit, All the important people, the elders of the town, came to the gate. So it was a convenient place to do business. When Abraham wanted to buy the cave of Machpelah in the book of Genesis to bury his wife, Genesis 23, he met the elders in the gate of the city of Hebron to make the transaction. When Absalom wanted to schmooze the people of Israel away from David onto himself, he did it in the gate of the city. Proverbs 31 speaks about a woman whose husband sits in the gate of the city because he's in a prominent position. And so Boaz, being prominent, meets with ten elders and this guy because this is a courtroom scene. Except, different from today, the trials were much shorter. And, uh, you know, you're in and you're out, and it wasn't televised. Other than that, it was a full-fledged courtroom scene like today. Now, um, he took ten men of the elders of the city, said, sit down, and so they sat down. Now, he's going he's gonna to tell them the issue at hand, the issue of a piece of land and a woman attached to the land. They go hand in hand. And this has absolutely everything to do with communion. Before uh, we jump right into it, and it's a quick, easy read, I want to give you a little bit of background on on what the Bible calls redemption, which means to buy back or to set straight or to reconcile or to rectify, to redeem. The Hebrew language hosts three words for redeem. One has to do with the redemption of an animal or a person. Uh, It's the Hebrew word pada. In Exodus 21, It's probably not fresh in your mind, but Exodus 21 has the law of goring, if an animal gores somebody with their horn. There was an actual law for that. And and the way it went is that if you had an ox that had a reputation for going out and being wild and goring people, and you didn't keep that ox restrained because of its nature, 
and that ox went out and gored somebody who was innocent, say a child, you would stone the ox and stone the owner. However, if the father of that slain child opted for redemption money, you could actually pay the family damages. That was the pada, the redemption. Another word comes up, kippur or kippur. It's strictly a religious word, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the covering of sin. It was the sacrifice that was done for redemption. And there's another word, and that's where it comes into play here, ga'al, ga'al. It speaks of redeeming land that has been lost or a person that needed redemption. And that's where we come into place here. The redeemer was called the goel, from the Hebrew word ga'al, goel, kinsman redeemer. He had to be somebody related to the person who lost the land or is the person here that needs to be married. And he, if he was meeting the qualifications, he was a kinsman. He was able to buy the land, and he was willing to go through with the transaction. If he met those qualifications, he could do it. Now, if you've been with us in our studies in the past on uh, this uh, Wednesday night, you already know this. If you haven't, I need to read Deuteronomy chapter 25, not all of it, just a few verses, so you understand what's going on. Listen to this. It's a very odd law. It's the law of the leveret marriage. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother must marry her and fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be counted as the son of the dead brother, so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if the dead man's brother refuses to marry the widow, she must go to the town gate and say to the leaders, My husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to marry me. The the leaders of the town will then summon him and try to reason with him. If he still insists that he doesn't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the leaders, pull off his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. And then she will say, This is what happens to the man who refuses to raise up a son for his brother. Then afterward, his family will be referred to as, quote, the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off, close quote. Now, you've got to admit, that's a tough law. And uh, I, for one, am glad <laughs> that that law is not in effect today. And I'm sure many men are. I think many men would opt for a loogie in the face and a slap upside the head. instead of having to do this. But we know why this was done. This was done to to perpetuate a tribe, a family, and the inheritance of land as long as the children of Israel remained in that land. So it wouldn't be lost. The deceased name and the inheritance would continue. Well, the living relative who did that was called the Goel, the kinsman or near relative redeemer. The next verse, the story unfolds. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
If you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, that is the first nearest relative, I will redeem it. Now perhaps Boaz's heart sunk when he said, well, I'll I'll redeem it. But I have a hunch that just by the wording, he's playing this really slick. Because he doesn't reveal anything about Ruth yet, but he will in the next few verses. But uh, let me paint the picture a little further for you, because I think some lights are going to go on. If a Jewish family lost land, a transaction was made. I have to sell the land because I need the money. And so it would not be mine until the year of Jubilee. Then it would revert back to its owner. But that's 50 years away. Now, when that transaction occurred, they would take a a parchment, a scroll, and uh, they would write on the scroll the terms of release, the condition of the property, how long to the Jubilee year, and what the necessary requirements are for that land to go back to the original family. Two copies of the deed, the title deed, the scroll, were kept. They were rolled up, sealed with some seals, and then kept, one in, in, a, in a public archive and one by the seller himself or herself so that when it came time to redeem the land back, you'd break the seal, undo the scroll, read the conditions of the redemptive clause, fulfill them, and you'd get the land back. Now, remember, there has to be qualifications. You have to be a kinsman, related, You have to be able, you have to have the money, the cash flow, and you have to be willing to do it. Now, the first guy is seemingly willing at first. He goes, I'll do it. And he is a near relative, and he is able to do it. But now he's going to become disqualified because he's going to be unwilling after the next sentence. Then Boaz said, after he tells about this land, Oh, by the way, he says, or actually in my version, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. See what Boaz is doing? Yeah, I'm willing to do it, he says. Oh, slipped my mind. You know, there's one little catch With the land comes a wife you have to marry to perpetuate seed so that the name isn't lost in Israel. He's very slick about this. I I admire his uh, approach. (laughs) Why this approach? He makes the land the central issue because that would be the central issue to the other guy. He could care less about the land. Boaz could care less about the land. He didn't want the land. He has enough land. He's got fields galore in Bethlehem. What is he after? The bride. A wife. She, he's in love with her. But just to add intrigue, remember, he doesn't need it, but he's willing to buy it to get the bride. Moreover, a Gentile bride. A non-Jewish bride. To be brought into his household. And uh, so he makes it very clear to this other relative that... Uh, She's not an Israelite. She's Ruth the Moabitess. And he probably pronounced it so that (laughs) 
it would sink in. Which changes the, 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 the complexion of the whole deal. Because this guy obviously knew the law. No Ammonite, no Moabite shall enter the congregation of the Lord up to the tenth generation. This would create a stigma. It was legal to do that because he uh, was marrying somebody who was once married to a Jewish brother. But the stigma of marrying a Moabitess. Notice what the guy says. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. Notice it's changed a little bit, the custom from the application of the, uh, the rigid law that we read in Deuteronomy. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and that was confirmation in Israel. So they saved the spit in the face. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he went inside, yes. <laughs> and so he took off his sandal. It seems that this guy was already married, probably even older than Boaz, and had his own children. The idea that it would ruin his inheritance probably means he didn't want to have to split his financial portfolio with his offspring as well as the potential offspring from a union with Ruth. He wasn't willing to do it. So before he was willing, able, and related. Now he's just related and able but unwilling. So he's not qualified. And Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day. See how quick this court case went through? It's almost done. You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Helion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Boaz is willing. He's more than willing. He loves her. Have you ever uh, met someone, and as soon as you meet them, you think, he reminds me of somebody else, or she reminds me, she looks like so-and-so, or the mannerisms are so much like that other person? Well, that's what we're forced to say in this chapter when we see what Boaz is doing. Here he is, a kinsman redeemer, very wealthy, doesn't need the land, willing to suffer the stigma of marrying a Gentile bride, willing to buy the land to get the, the bride. It's very reminiscent of what we know from the New Testament, of Jesus Christ who came to this earth to not only die for the sins of the Jewish nation, he came to his own, his own people received him not, and the gospel went out to the Gentiles and most people today that believe are non-Jewish, are Gentiles. We thank God for our Jewish brethren. But the truth is today, God is not, is not primarily dealing with the nation of Israel as he will be doing in the future, but a whole host of Gentile men and women, the church, have come to faith. Now, the idea of a kinsman redeemer in a marriage situation fits Jesus perfectly because in the New Testament we're called the bride of Christ. 
And I love it because one of the most intimate pictures of relationship is marriage. In a marriage, a good marriage, a healthy marriage, you share everything. It's a beautiful portrait of total blending of lives. And it's an intimate picture. And I love that because I think so many people who are not Christians get the idea that if there is a God, he's aloof and he's distant. And there are many people who are deistic. They just believe there is a God, but he's removed. He wound up the universe and he stepped back and watches it tick out of control. And then I know of so many other Christians who feel sort of that same way about God. He's distant. He's the good Lord up there somewhere. Instead of my personal bridegroom that I have a loving, intimate, close, winsome relationship with. And we have a total blending of lives. Okay, there's the background. Now I have to jump ahead to a scripture in the New Testament. Matthew 13, Jesus gave a parable, and it will just fit as I read it to you. It's only one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You want to know what that's a parable of? Jesus Christ coming to buy the world to get the treasure of the church. Now, I've heard other interpretations. I've heard interpretation of, oh, that's the Christian who sells everything he has and gets rid of everything in his life that he might attain Christ. That absolutely does not even fit the rest of Scripture. First of all, what do you have that's worth selling in exchange for Christ? By the way, that would be earning your salvation. You have nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring, says the song. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's not by works. It's by faith, trust in him, his finished work. Jesus, in that same set of parables, said the field is the world. It's Jesus Christ who came to this earth. He didn't need the field. He didn't need the world. He wanted the treasure. You're the treasure. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You're the joy. The reason I'm convinced we interpret that parable the other way, the first interpretation, is because we have such a hard time with grace. We have such a hard time grappling that God sees us as his treasure that we just think, it can't be right. I've got to go for that other interpretation. I'm going to work hard for it and attain salvation. No. Jesus emptied himself, Philippians 2, to become a man, to become a kinsman redeemer, to buy the field because of the treasure in it. Just like Boaz, who didn't need the field, took the field so he could have her kinsman redeemer. Now, that brings up a question. I want to jump to another scripture, and then we'll close this chapter and take communion. What about the future of the field? If the field is the world and Jesus buys the pearl of great price or the the treasure hidden in the field, same set of parables, what of the future of the field itself? Now I take you to Revelation 5. I'm going to read it to you. And I saw a scroll In the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, there was writing on the inside and on the outside. It was sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and unroll the scroll 
But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I wept because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has conquered. He is worthy to open the scroll and break its seven seals. I looked and I saw a lamb that had been killed, but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And he took the scroll, and the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp. And they held golden bowls filled with incense, the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were killed, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests, and they will reign upon the earth. What is going on here? Well, obviously, it's some transaction that includes, as it says in verse 2 and 3, all of earth, heaven and earth. And it's so significant that when seemingly no one is found to open this scroll and unloose the seals, John wept. And in my translation, it says he wept much. He cried convulsively. He sobbed like a child because no one was worthy. Then the angel said, stop it. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that should ring a bell. The heir to David's throne, should ring another bell, has prevailed. So he looked to see the lion and he saw not a lion but a lamb with wounds that had shed blood. And everybody in heaven and earth said, it's because of your shed blood that you are worthy to take the scroll and unloose the seals. What is the scroll? I can only surmise from the background, the custom, the culture, the parable, the foreshadowing, putting it all together, that it is the title deed to the earth. And Revelation 5, where I just read, is what we would call in real estate the closing. The deal closes. The land in question is the earth. God created the earth. God sustains the earth. But there's a need here to reclaim it. Now people say, well, why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And you see, God gave to Adam dominion over all of the earth. And Adam forfeited it. Satan came in and sold him a different bill of goods in the Garden of Eden. And that... that Yielding to Satan's suggestion caused the dominion of the earth to shift so that Satan is now called the God of this world. And just to show you how bad it got, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. In other words, Adam became the ultimate Benedict Arnold for the earth, the universe. 
and took the land that God gave him to be dominion over and gave it in effect to Satan through the fall and sin spread to all men. Paul called Satan the God of this age who has blinded those who do not believe. He said, well, wait a minute. I thought Satan was defeated at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that defeated him. You're right. It did. It did positionally. But, you know, Satan has yet to lay his arms down. He's still fighting. That's pretty obvious. He's still out there. He hasn't stopped tempting people. He hasn't stopped suggesting evil to you or to me or to the whole world. He's still busy. And even when Satan was tempting Jesus, Satan said, "Just I know why you came. You came for the world. You came to redeem the field, to get the bride. Tell you what, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the field. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world because they're mine. And I can give them to whoever I want. And we, we never read of Jesus saying, that's not true. Because he knew it was true. There had been a shift of dominion to the God of this world. So there still is the necessity to get that field and redeem it and purge it. And that's the purpose, one of the purposes, one of the purposes of the tribulation period, which we won't go into now, but we have in the past. And the idea of that recreation of the field that he will take dominion over. Now, remember there has to be qualifications, right? The kinsman redeemer has to meet qualifications. First of all, he has to be related. Now listen carefully. This is the reason of the incarnation. Why did God become flesh? So he could be related to us. You see, if Jesus Christ was just fully God but not man, like the Gnostics said, he really didn't have flesh and blood, he couldn't be our kinsman to redeem. He's not related. Becoming flesh and blood, he could taste death for every man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ, God, the Son, the second person in the Trinity, stepped out of heaven, past the constellations, into the Milky Way to a speck of dust called earth to become theanthropos, God and man, completely God, completely man, so in relating to us, he could redeem us. Had to be related. Second of all, he had to be able to pay the price. Just as Boaz was rich, didn't need the field, and could easily buy it to get the bride, Jesus Christ is able to do it. And that's what Revelation 5 is all about. You are worthy because you paid the ultimate price. Your blood was shed. The blood of God was spilled to redeem this field. When Jesus hung on the cross, one of the last words he said is, it is finished. And you know if you've been here any length of time that it's one Greek word, tetelestai, finished or paid in full. A merchant would stamp tetelestai on a receipt or on a wax seal when something had been paid in full after the down payment had been made. Tetelestai, paid in full. Jailers would often declare to the criminal who had his crime paid for by his own time or by money, Tetelestai, paid in full. And we owe a debt because of our sin. We could never pay it. Jesus came and paid it because he was able. 
He was related, and he was able, and he said, it's finished as our kinsman redeemer. The third qualification is you have to be willing to do it. And that first guy was unwilling to do it when he found out a person was involved. Boaz was willing to do it because of the person. Was Jesus Christ willing? Was he forced into it? No, it was absolutely by his own choice. In the garden, he said, if there's any way this cup can pass, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Related, able, willing. He said in another passage, John 10, I am the good shepherd. No man takes my life from me. So the idea that people murdered him He was a victim of a tragedy is nonsense. He said in advance, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and to take it again. Nails didn't put Jesus on the cross. Nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross. Love put Jesus on the cross, and love kept him there. He was willing to pay for it. So if you ever wonder, why does God love me? Does God love me? Is it possible for God to love me like that, that I'm his treasure? You look back to the cross because it says that is the price. Your kinsman redeemer was willing and able to pay to get the field to buy the treasure. Romans 3.24, being justified, listen to this, being justified freely by grace. Freely means without a cause. Listen to it again. Being justified without cause by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. This is what it means when you say, well, why does God love us so much? Here's the answer. There's no cause. At least there's no cause in you or in me. It's not like God looked at us one day and said, you're so irresistible. The cause lies in God alone. The cause lies because he is all-loving. And he was willing to confer grace upon us, being justified without cause, freely, through his grace and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, the story concludes, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brethren and from his position in the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We're witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, they're saying this to him as a blessing, to be like Rachel and Leah. Remember, they had a lot of kids. There were 12 tribes. And the two who built the house of Israel, that you may prosper in Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem region, and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, And the the women, that's the women of the town, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, 
And may his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor women gave him a name. That's interesting. It's the first recorded instance that I can find that the neighbor women named the child. I can tell you, Boaz and Ruth were very gracious. They gave him a name saying, There is born a son to Naomi. All that means is that it's by this union and the birth that restores this once bitter woman back to life and into the inheritance of Israel. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David. I read that quickly. That's all to say that covers nine centuries. From 1885 B.C. to 1040 B.C. From the exodus of Egypt up to the time of David. So it's showing the genealogy of the tr- this part of the tribe of Judah up to the lineage of the monarchy, King David in Bethlehem. And Jesse begot David. Of course, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, was of the lineage of David. That's why he had to go to Bethlehem to be born. That was part of the prophecy. Something else I want to close with, and that is, Ruth, remember last chapter, in chapter 3, Ruth claimed Boaz as her kinsman redeemer, right? She went to him, uncovered his feet, woke him up at night, and said, in effect, I claim you as my Goel, my kinsman redeemer. So she made the claim, and then he acted upon it. And Naomi said to Ruth, now you just rest, because this man is just going to hot-foot it around town until he finishes this business. You just rest. He's going to do the work, but here's the catch. He did the work in response to her claim. So it is with salvation. Salvation isn't automatic. Well, you know, my mother was a Christian. Great. What about you? Well, my grandfather was. I come from a long line of Christians. Are you a Christian? You have to personally lay claim upon Christ as your kinsman redeemer. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. It's not by default. It's not automatic. Once you say, I want you as my Lord and Savior, he does the work. He'll say, to die, paid in full. Something else. Her decision was public. It was done. The transaction was done publicly. Boaz got ten elders of the city, brought them to the city gate, so they were witnesses. And so making a commitment to Christ is public. At least in the sense that we live for him publicly. You can't be a secret agent Christian. And some people try to do that. You know, we want to get a Bible so small that we could pack it in a pocket. Nobody will know we have one. Not that you have to carry a big huckamucka Bible everywhere you go. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we read the Bible like nobody's looking. We go... And we just let it stew instead of being public with it. 
If you confess me before men, said Jesus, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. This was a public transaction. But the great hinge was her choice. She made the choice and Boaz responded. So Boaz, the mighty man of Bethlehem, the hero of the story, rescues Naomi and Ruth, foreshadowing Jesus, the mighty man of Bethlehem, who would be the redeemer, related, able, and willing to buy us out of slavery and bring us into a relationship with the Father. Keep that one verse in mind next time you're just sort of stewing. I don't think I'm really all that valuable to God. Remember this. Then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Why? Because you were in it. And tonight we take tokens of that, don't we? By your blood, that's what this speaks of. By the lamb that was slain, that's what this speaks of. We're redeemed to God. There is a Jewish legend. It is merely a legend, but it does speak a truth. It says, when God was about to create man, he took into his counsel the angels that stood around his throne. Create him not, said the angel of justice, for if you do, he will commit all kinds of wickedness against his fellow men. He will be hard, he will be cruel and dishonest and unrighteous. Create him not, said the angel of truth, for he will be false and deceitful to his brother, fellow man, and even to you. Create him not, said the angel of holiness, for he will follow that which is impure in thy sight and dishonor thee to thy face. Then stepped forward the angel of mercy who said, Create him, our heavenly Father. For when he sins and turns from the path of right and truth and holiness, I will take him tenderly by the hand and speak loving words to him, and then I will lead him back to you. Though a legend, that is the role of Jesus, the messenger of mercy, the God of mercy, who brings us to the Father, leads us back by redemption to a relationship with the Father. That's how you're going to get to heaven. That's the only way you're going to get to heaven. Because you had a Goel, a kinsman redeemer, who was willing to come and be related to you, flesh and blood, was able to pay the price. He did it with his blood, and he was willing because of his love. That's how you'll get to heaven. So uh, George Beverly Shea of the Billy Graham Crusades is right on when he sings, Oh, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. Let's not forget that. I wonder if sometimes we don't look around when we sing that hymn and think, oh, the wonder of it all, that God loves you. (laughs) But we need a correct estimation of ourselves, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, It's a wonder that he loves me. It's a wonder that he sees me as his treasure. It's a wonder that he would buy the field. And so we can only respond in deep gratitude 
and with a further commitment to love him and serve him, amen, 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 to